Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 37 on February 15th, 2019, coming to you at the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking historic and eco-friendly floors with Dan Cooper. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. Today we're talking with Dan Cooper, who's the president and CEO of Cooper Lace and has designed and sold historic lace curtains for 21 years, providing them to private homes, museum, and film sets. Cooper Lace was the first company to introduce a lace curtain panel designed by William Morris, who, if you haven't read him, you should check out News From Nowhere as soon as you can. Dan is a well-known author and has published over a thousand articles on the subjects of antiques, architecture, preservation, and historic interior design in such magazines as Old House Interiors, Arts and Crafts Homes, Old House Journal, and many, many more. So I used to be an archaeologist, as many of you know. And I always used to tell uh, new people coming into archaeology, if you want to travel, don't become an expert in one particular area, but gain expertise in a particular topic like teeth or bones or something that every human has or uses so that you get to travel around the world looking at teeth or bones instead of being stuck in one location of the earth. Dan, uh, as a leading authority on the subject of historic carpeting and lace and other interior treatments, has traveled throughout North America and probably much of the world consulting and has worked in many state capitals, governor's mansions, decorative arts and house museums, um, including residences in the District of Columbia. Uh, you can find out more about Dan at www.historic-carpet.com. So please enjoy this conversation we had with him a few weeks ago, followed by a discussion between my wife and I, which ran a little long, so I cut it off and I posted the rest of our unedited conversation after the credits. So if you haven't heard enough about wood floors by the end of this, then there's more for you there, but I imagine most of you uh, will learn more about wood floors uh, in the next 20 minutes than you'll ever thought you've wanted to know. So my name is Scott. Uh, from you know that from the email. My wife's name is Lauren. So Hi there. And hey Lauren, how are you? Good. Thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. So what would you like to know? So our kind of situation is we have an 1850s carpenter gothic or American gothic uh, house, and the floors upstairs are not original. The floors downstairs are. They're pretty spectacular and we haven't touched those yet. Um, they're white pine that's, uh, the widest one is like 26 inches wide um, from northern Wisconsin uh, brought down. But yeah, so the upstairs ones are just three and a half inch pine flooring or wood floor, tongue and groove, probably put in in the, I don't know, maybe 50s because they use the uh, square nails, the square masonry type nails, not the modern uh, nails. Are you sure it's tongue, tongue and groove? Because yeah. the stuff downstairs isn't. It is. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, on the sides I can see it. Okay. We've taken up the, you know, we've sanded it up, um, so now it's just uh, bare wood, and we're kind of debating what to do with it. And I like to do things historically accurate, um, and Lauren likes things to be easy to care for. <laughs> and sometimes those don't go together. My main concern, you know, so so we have the, the historical accuracy that we want to maintain. There's also eco-friendliness we would like to maintain. Yes. But then also... My whole thing with a lot of the projects we do around the house is I don't 
want it to stand out in a way where I would need to explain to people why it looks the way it does. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, one of my specialties is historic carpets. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that hardwood floors or bare, you know, uh, polished or finished floors really didn't come into popularity until the late 1870s and 1880s. Oh. Before then, carpet uh, rooms were carpeted. So those wide pine bo- boards that everybody t- talks about were typically covered. And this is a very early pilgrim century house where they did something called a sand floor where they just, you know, they swept it with sand and just scrubbed it. But um, the that sort of that Wallace nutting vision of the big pumpkin pine boards um, is actually um, a conceit that they, they didn't exist. Oh, wow. uh, floors were carpeted. That would explain. It. There's so, a lot of irregularities in them in our in our original floors. We're looking at them right now, uh, <laughs> and so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I suppose it would also be warmer without tongue and groove. I suppose tongue and groove is, is warmer. There's usually a layer of something in between the sub floor and upper floor. Even um, there's something below your wide pine boards, mm. probably cross uh, perpendicular to it. Sure, and that's rough sawn. Oh yeah. Um, that doesn't mean you have to carpet your floor. It just means that if you're, um, I, I, I would go, I go into museums all the time and everybody's saying, oh, there were oriental rugs. And the truth is that oriental rugs were really expensive and not room size unless you lived in a palace hmm. up until East Lake in the 1870s and 1880s. This is why I go nuts when I see historic movies set before 1880s and the oriental <laughs> carpets and whatever. And I just, it's just wrong. But I don't know what to tell you, except, you know, I'm not going to make you carpet carpet your floor. So you have these pine floors and you, if you want to keep them, it's fine because you're not doing anything that's, um, that hasn't been done. I'm sure. Have they been finished before? Yeah. I've taken up, um, light stain and uh, polyurethane top. That's okay. So that's been taken off. So you've got bare floors now. Correct. Bare wood. Are there, uh, if you have things like dogs, children, or a pension for walking around your, uh, your house in golf cleats, um, <laughs> you probably want to protect it more than, than others. Um, okay. The downstairs pine is probably a softer pine. Mm-hmm. The upstairs is, is like a yellow pine, or people often mistake the two. Okay. Uh, fur has a tighter grain, and that comes in around 1890, 1900. Okay. Um, you've probably seen it in many a kitchen floor uh, in, in post. 20th century, post 19th century houses. I would say with a sand floor, you can oil them. I've, um, I'm or, or wax them. Those are high maintenance finishes. Mm. Um, you have to redo them. Um, they may look blotchy. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm not advising against it, but you have to be prepared to do more with mm-hmm. a floor like that. I always recommend a, um, a, uh, a harder finish, um, uh, a varnish, whether it's oil or water-based, okay. uh, is, is your choice. Um, have you, uh, are you aware of the merits and the uh, disadvantages to uh, the oil versus water urethanes? No. I've mostly been looking okay. at um, the oil as in um, just oiling them with linseed oil, but not, uh, I haven't differentiated. Yeah, that can be a big gooey mess. Um, You can do that. Um, I would say that you could use a harder oil, like a Watco, any of those penetrating oils. I think Mm -hmm. some of them are tongue-based. 
Um, linseed's a tricky beast, and you have to apply a lot of it. I would, uh, I would say that um, going with a, uh, a satin urethane, or some people like to cut a satin and a gloss to knock down the gloss a little, hmm. is often uh, the, the best way to go. Always use three coats. Um, there's some folks who try to, pros that'll say, oh, you just need two coats, and you can always tell when somebody uses two coats. Oil-based is harder and cheaper. Uh, it, the problem is that it uh, off-gasses, so it's got a higher VOC. Right, the um, the water-based ones are um, more expensive, but they don't smell, and they... Um, uh, they're not quite as tough. That's why I asked about kids, golf cleats, you know, um, that sort of thing. You can patch them, though. though you can scuff sand them and, and apply more. And also, the off-gassing is somewhat of an issue. Part of the impetus for refinishing the floors right now is we have a newborn coming in March. So, hey, congrats. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so the one of the things that also attracted me about the linseed oil or even shellac was the inertness, at least like biologically inertness of it, rather than the polyurethanes. Right. I have I have put shellac on floors before. It's a, a actually somewhat of a higher maintenance finish. Looks great. There's nothing like orange shellac on anything. Mm. But um, it does wear. Mm -hmm. uh, the good thing about that is you can scuff it and add more. Right. Um, it's, you can build it up essentially. It's the same way. You know, it's like French polishing your floor. Mm. I would say, particularly as um, parents to be, I would go with a water-based urethane. Um, it's tough. You're going to have baby barf all over it and God knows what other substances. Is this your first kid? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you actually think you're going to have time to do stuff like fix your floors. Um, <laughs> not for the first 10 years. I would say, yeah, water-based urethane, it's going to be tough. It's resilient. It'll deal with the baby and the mess and the food and all that stuff. And you don't have to do anything to it. It does have a low VOC. It will not um, have harmful um, fumes. Um, at worst, Lauren, you can just you know go away for a day if you're hyper or sensitive or cautious about any uh, solvent fumes. But uh, you're, when you use oil-based urethane, yeah, you know it for a day or two. That was one of my yeah worries about it. Uh, luckily, it's we can close it off pretty well. There's a good door between that and the rest of the house. So okay, I kind of have my heart set on linseed oil just because I use a, a lot of the linseed oil for other things that I do. I do some woodworking stuff, like I built a timber trim chicken coop, and any of the exposed wood there had the linseed oil on it, and it just. I just really like how that brings out the wood. But, yeah, right, I, it's a I great like... finish for exterior water resiliency. Um, it's, if you're using oil paint, we'll, we'll thin it with turpentine and soak it into wood that's dried mm. out. It's a, it's a good primer. It's just the pitter-patter of little feet and Legos being ground in and all that sort of thing. It's just you have to think in terms of what's going to happen to that floor over the next five to ten years. You can try an, an oil like Watco. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, I, I mean, they look really nice. Um, speaking as a stepfather of four who had kids skateboarding and <laughs> right across the floors and stuff, um, they're, they're a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you mentioned that, that historically, you know, these floors were mostly carpeted, you know, bare wood floors is a pretty modern style. So, so would there, there not be any finishing techniques under these floors or was it just something simple, but because it was covered with carpet, there wasn't much that was bare. needed? It's just bare as it came from the mill. Yeah. Okay. Mm. 
Okay. It's usually, it's usually just raw pine that was unsealed. Sometimes you'll see newspapers thrown over as a pad. Um, oh, wow. short, towards the end of the 19th century, there were actual pads put down. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like a horsehair and jute sort of thing. But uh, on the early stuff that was uh, nailed, like Brussels carpets or Axminsters, uh, I, I mean Axminsters or um, ingrains, mm-hmm. ingrains and Venetian carpets, um, no, just went right over the wood. And you can tell, if you look very carefully around the perimeter of your floor by the baseboard, you should be able to see the tack holes probably every, oh, two to four inches. You see, sometimes they're they're black because they had a iron that was in the wood. It's subtle. You have to know to look for it. Yeah, we'll have to do that next time I'm down on the floor looking around. Uh, Yeah, because there's definitely a lot of uh, exposed nail heads uh, in our original fast right. It wouldn't be on um, the tackless strip, which is tacked down every 12 or 16. You'll see them, um, they were laid by hand. They were typically fairly even, but they you know, they were done by hand and sure. without uh, any gauge. And you'll see a regular pattern of t- uh, tack marks in the perimeter of the room. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll look for that. That's really neat. Uh, Here's the thing. If you yeah. do linseed it, mm-hmm. then you are, you're sort of committed to that, mm-hmm. um, unless you let it really, really dry out over a period of years before you can put a varnish on them. So if you put down the linseed and say, oh, I've just got, you know, baby barf and every, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, you're going to you're gonna have to continue doing um, linseed like, like wax. I mean, right. you can either use a finish like that or you can use a varnish. Um, it's, it's your call, but it's a baby and they're messy. <laughs> That's true. So I, so my I my so I wife, just to give you an idea, what you're, my, because of four stepchildren, she had all their towels monogrammed. This is oh, so oh, that none right. of them could leave their towels on the floor <laughs> after the bath time. Yeah. Okay, you laugh. Um, and my job was to put the wet towel on their pillow. So <laughs> there's just stuff you can't imagine um, <laughs> that they will come up with. So um, as, as someone who's collected antiques since college and, and, and likes my, my stuff very n- nicely done, um, sure. I, I understand wanting to be authentic and stuff. But, mm-hmm. man, kids, they're... Uh, they're messy. So, so if kids weren't a factor, what would be best option? Would you still go with a polyurethane? If I was in your shoes, I would, knowing what I know now, I would go with a water-based, uh, a water-based urethane mm-hmm. because it's low VOC. You don't have to be concerned about exposure to you or the kid as far as fumes. And, and that's once again hyper hyper aware of those things, and it's a much more resilient floor. And unless unless that becomes like you know one of those sequestered rooms where only adults and company go into, but if it's a kind of room that the, the little darling's going to be crawling around, stuff happens. And I suppose the only way to take that up then is uh, is sanding it out eventually down the road if we were ever to have to refinish it. They penetrate. I mean, they would have to be sanded down. The linseed, I guess, eventually will dry out. I don't know how long it would take in an interior application but it would my concern would be that it would be since it's a water barrier you would then probably be limited to an oil-based urethane because I I don't have any anecdotal experience of somebody trying to put a water-based urethane over a floor that has been linseed oiled. I know that floor refinishers always ask if you use something like Murphy's oil soap because that leaves a a film that uh, is a a pain for sanding and refinishing, even if you're sanding. I've just about had my limit of sanding. If you you shellac a floor, Mm -hmm. as they did, um, in the mid-19th century, um, you have to scrub it down with ammonia, basically, to, to clean it and prep it for the next layer of um, okay. shellacking. Okay. 
and you, because there's a, there's a film and there's dirt and stuff like so. that. Do you recommend getting the shellac flakes and mixing it on site or getting the canned uh, pre-made shellac? Have I have experience? used both for, for antique restoration and mixing that is expensive. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a nice tough finish. Uh, it, it's fresh, it's hard. I use it when it's a good antique. When it's not uh, when it's not a good antique, I buy the store-bought pre-mixed stuff and cut it down a bit. It's like two, two, pounds, two pounds per gallon sort of ratio? See, for penetrating, let's see, uh, it comes typically, uh, shellac comes with a three-pound cut um, if I'm doing uh, if there's any sort of carving or, or anything like that I cut it down to one pound and let it oh, wow. that way the runs don't you know color um, but for floors I mean the first coat you always send down to penetrate I would advise against shellacking for from floors for most people uh, you know if you spill alcohol on it meaning beer um, um, oh, gin right. anything like that it'll etch it um, and unless you wax it, and then you've got that whole can of worms. Right. The, also, um, it's denatured alcohol. It's pretty fumey as well. Um, it's not as bad as oil-based urethane, but it's definitely, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert or, uh, on anything to do with prenatal exposure, but it is a solvent. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, since I have you here and your specialty is carpets, if we are looking for a, a carpet for 1850s appropriateness in uh, rural Wisconsin, what uh, do you have any sort of name or type of carpet that we would look for? Sure. In that scenario, you probably weren't dealing by 1850s. There were Wilton and Brussels carpets. They were very expensive, and unless you were the, you know, they were the the, the best house in town, and were going into Chicago to get. Um, to get their their goods, mm -hmm. um, my guess is that they might have had an Axminster or very uh, had to use a flat weave carpet known as a an ingrain. There's a company called Family Heirloom Weavers in Red Lion, PA, and another one in Vermont called Thistle Hill Weavers. They make wonderful uh, flat weave carpets that are tacked down tightly. Um, they're not cheap. None of these are. They're wool and they're. You know, take a look. They're all hand woven. Not hand. They're machine woven, but they're limited run. Uh, that would be the um, the accurate thing to do, and that's what we do in museum settings. It's a little it's a little pricey for the average homeowner, though. Just to have just to have that piece of information, maybe someday in the future, that'll be sure. a future wish or something like that. No, that's fine. I consult for a, a, the English Wilton Company. You can go to historiccarpet.com and see okay. uh, yeah. what we do. I think chances are that your house wouldn't have had that. It would have been more of a flat weave or open axminster. I mean, it was a nice little village, but we didn't get the, the train, and so our village has basically stayed exter uh, pretty unchanged since the 1850s on the exteriors. Um, we're on the National Register. We're and yeah, it's a nice little village with a commons and about 65 people. And a lot of them are pretty into keeping their houses up, at least ex in the exterior. If you've got a, a bare wood floor and it's been sanded now, mm -hmm. you're not doing anything that's uh, incorrect, if you will, by varnishing it because that was it was done many times. And in truth, to be historically correct if this is say the best parlor or something it, it should have had carpet so whatever you're doing underneath it doesn't really matter okay, that's good. another thing you can do is go with a later period of interpretation say around uh, 1890 to 1910 and they often put um, hardwood over those um, mm. what you frequently saw in that period was something called oak carpet and this is a very thin oak veneer it's about half an inch thick when oh, it's yeah. laid 
And you can always tell because the strips are about an inch to an inch and a half wide, mm-hmm. and they are face nailed into the joist. So you see, um, you'll see a tack every 16 inches, sure. and they're yeah. much narrower than your typical tongue and groove floors. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking a bit out of your Sunday to chat with us. Now we have more to talk about. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Good luck with your house. Good luck with your your pending child. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you on all that. Uh, linseed oil. You know, I'm sure if we talk to other, you know, it's like talking to any professional, you're going to get multiple different opinions. So I'm sure there's somewhere out there that agrees, that agrees with you. That agrees with me about the linseed oil. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the other issue is it's like either you're doing maintenance every year mm-hmm. for a few hours or you're doing maintenance every 20 years for a couple of days. But then that's just one more thing that you're adding to your annual maintenance of the house. Yeah. We have lots of projects in this house. That's true, but do we want to do a little bit every year or do we want to do a lot of bit every couple decades? How often do people really need to redo their floors when it's done well? You know, I remember when we went from carpet to hardwood floor, like 2002, Mm -hmm. and they moved out of the house in 20... 14 sure and they never redid the floors in that time yeah so that was 12 years right there so so yes a big chunk of maintenance you know at some point but take that big chunk of maintenance every 15 20 years mm-hmm. divide it out divide it out by 15 20 years is that how much time it's going to take you every year if you're linseeding it plus yeah. you know i get what he's saying you know there it's not only going to be a baby's room there's going to be the play area as well mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of cleanup. What's going to be the better, more thorough cleanup? I mean, it does leave, the linseed oil leaves a satin-type finish, which um, does, it does repel water to some extent because oil and water don't mix, right? That's the mechanism that keeps mm-hmm. the moisture out of the wood when you put the oil in it. So it's good to do it now in the winter when it's really dry anyway, right? So that not much moisture in there really soaks in. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to stand up on like a glassy surface like a polyurethane is. Yeah, that's true. Right, so think of all the orange juice that's going to be spilled on it, all of the barf. What are we eating up there? Barf, pee. yes. There's going to be a play area. You think they're not going to bring snacks up to the play area with them? Eat at the table. You think there's never going to be any food brought upstairs? We don't bring food upstairs. That's not true. I used to eat one of my offices up there. I would eat up there. The other issue is I'm likely to be the one doing the maintenance either way. Right, <laughs> and, and, but, and I also... Love you very much, oh, and I you. have said many have times that your <laughs> that your productivity level is going to change once there is another person you're taking care of during the day. Well, yeah, but once I get them trained up to clean the floors, then I'm not going to have to do it. You're not gonna. Okay, so so next year at this time, you think you're gonna have no, a no, a nine month old helping you? No. no. And are you gonna want to do it with a nine month old strapped to your back? Well, the other thing is though with linseed oil. It's biologically inert. Like I looked at the, you know, the exposure um, SDS sheet lists all the different dangers that all these different products have. They're required to be listed so you know what sort of cancer, carcinogen, or reproductive harm or anything in any of the different ways that you come in contact with these things. And you read down the list and it's, there's, you know, no, no prop basically. So even if I was doing it with the kid around, it's not going to hurt the kid. But it's still one more thing you're going to have to do. That's and, true. And when you already will have... Two full-time jobs, taking mm-hmm. care of the child is one full-time job, and the institute as your other full-time job. Yeah. And then you want to find time to do this once a year? <laughs> I mean, it's part of maintenance. But again, it's adding to, I mean, it's yeah. adding to the amount of maintenance that you're adding. So, so what's the most productive use of our time and our money 
but also maintaining our ethics of wanting to be eco-friendly. Right. Well, and you're supposed to... Uh, well, and the other thing is, like, if it does get scratches um, with the polyurethane, you can't necessarily... It's, it's harder to repair it, and that is more of a chore. The linseed oil, you just buff it and then reapply linseed oil, and that's supposed to take out the scratches. Okay, so, but the difference is how much more easily does it get marred? Yeah. So it seems like with the linseed oil, it gets marred much much more easily but mm -hmm. then you also have an easier time refinishing it versus with something like polyurethane and i didn't know there was water-based polyurethane so yeah, so that's interesting either. yeah that was, um, good to, that was good to know uh, but but does it not get scratched as easily when the dog is rock, walking around with her clippy clappy nails gonna have less impact on a polyurethane floor than on a linseed floor right so i think either one i mean Bottom line, either one is work. It's just whether or not we want to spread it out <clears throat> or have it all come due at once. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know if one's better than the other, really. Because, mm -hmm. you know, like you say, yeah, do I want to add another day's worth of work every year to my maintenance schedule for the house? And it's going to be more than a day. Everything takes longer and, and more trips to the hardware store than you expect to. I don't know to. what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, on the, but on the other hand, you know, when I have to redo the floor, polyurethane, that's like a week mm -hmm. out of my schedule, I mean, which is a big a chunk, you know okay. what I mean? But also the other consideration is, I mean, it's not like these are going to be bare floors. There, there are going to be area rugs down. Right, and in, maybe a runner down the middle, like right. in, in the high traffic areas, which obviates a lot of Right, so it's really only the edges that are yeah. going to be at risk, you know, which are not high risk areas. So that even more elongates the time in which something needs to be done. For either it. one, though. For linseed oil or for polyurethane. So with linseed oil, if there's carpet on it, it, it doesn't need to be refinished every year. No. It only I mean, needs oh. to be refinished based on the traffic? It only needs to be refinished as it looks like it needs to be refinished. Like it's a visual thing. Like, oh yeah, these could use So it does but but it dries out. So does having a carpet on it make it dry out faster because it's soaking into the carpet as well or as less fast because it's because covered. it's holding in moisture. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Sounds carpet. like we need to test it out in the in the interest of bringing <laughs> Science. It. Well, and the other thing is if we want to talk more like of the low-tech sort of ethos about it, linseed oil is, is flaxseed ground up into oil. Yeah. And then there's a type of salt added to it to make it dry out faster. Otherwise, raw linseed oil takes a long time, but it's completely food safe. You can drink it and you'll get intestinal distress, but you can drink it. It'll just clean you out. Uh, but it's food safe is what I'm saying. And so in theory, you could grow, process, and make your own linseed oil to cover your floors. Are you thinking of doing that? No. Okay. <laughs> but you could. One could is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, so okay. that, I mean, that certainly has something to say for it because the polyurethane is a chemical process. Not that the harvest and processing of linseed oil in our day and age isn't driven by fossil fuels, but it doesn't have to be. But yeah, so, so it seems like based on our conversation and with Dan, there's not really a historically accurate way that we need to refinish the floors. Right. So that's a factor that we can take out of our decision making. So now it's the other aspects right. that we want to maintain. Well, except for the fact that polyurethane wasn't available when the house was built. Like, But it, but it saying, sounds like they wouldn't have used it they, because it would have been just raw wood with right, carpets down. Correct. Yeah, it, it would have been raw wood. That would be the most accurate thing, but I think we both agreed not to do that. <laughs> right. Polyurethane, had they wanted to treat it, they couldn't have used polyurethane until the 1900s. Okay, but this house was still around in the 1900s. That's true. That's true. <laughs>
and that floor wasn't built in the 1800s. That floor was like right. Anyway, so. So, 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 we, so we do have a free hand historically. Yeah, so now it's a question of eco-friendliness and, and maintenance. Yeah. Those are the two factors we're looking at. After much discussion, we have reached a decision. With an asterisk. We are going to try linseed oil. Yes. And see how it is. Yes. And if it doesn't work out, we will switch to... Oil-based. Water-based. Well, we... No, we can't switch to water-based. We'd have to do oil-based after because it's an oil. Water won't work. I didn't know that when what? we made this decision. Yes, we did. Oh, no. I totally... We said that. We said we could always put the oil over it. It's too late now. We haven't... <laughs> We've already done some of the floors. Uh, also, as part of this... So, partially it's an experiment. Because not many people do this anymore, we can document how it goes. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the experimental ethos that I'm forcing <laughs> Lauren to live under. Um, and also, um, there's also a compromise that Lauren gets more freehand in choosing paint colors and other things around the house that I might otherwise want to have more of a compromise in. Because <laughs> paint's easy to change. Marriage is all about compromise, so this is how we've decided to compromise. Sure. <laughs> Though I didn't have complete information at the we, time of the I decision. wish we were recording then because we I absolutely said that. Absolutely. Because I was surprised that you didn't react to that. All right. Well, then if the linseed oil doesn't work out, you've got a whole hell of a lot more work to do because we've got to switch to water-based. I guess you. Crossed. I guess you've committed yourself to potentially having the worst scenario that we didn't want. What's Is that? Is that right? The, the oil-based. Potentially. Well, it's worse when you apply it. Once it's dried... And solidified but, and outgassed, then it's fine. Right, but, but what about like the manufacturing process and the fact yeah. that, yeah, we'll all have to leave the house? So oil-based is bad during the application process and while it's drying and for a bit of time after that. Once it's completely dry, it's fairly inert. Barely. Okay. Water-based is slightly, is, is better, but also the manufacturing process for water-based and oil-based are about the same. Hmm. So they're both... I can't make them in my backyard. I could make linseed oil in my backyard if I wanted. All right. Well, the decision's been done because we're halfway done linseed oiling it now. Yeah, and it's fun to do. <laughs> it is nice and quick. I will say that. Yeah. For the rest of this discussion, keep listening after the credits. And now let's turn to this week in low-tech news. The Transnational Institute has published a long read on the interdigitation of climate, politics, and capital that is a great primer for those of you interested in a summary on the strong indictment of these social systems that have created a negative feedback loop for the global environment. A link to this article and all of those I'm mentioning here can be found in the podcast notes as well as on our weekly news roundup published earlier this morning. Two recent studies about Antarctica's melting ice were analyzed by Mother Jones and Grist. One study states that, quote, as relatively cool, salt-free meltwater spreads from Antarctica and Greenland across the world's oceans, it will have dire impacts. The circulation of the Atlantic Ocean will slow, changing how the planet distributes heat and prompting a complex pattern of atmospheric and oceanic changes worldwide, according to the paper, end quote. This could cause sea levels to rise more quickly than we expected. They caution that up to eight feet of rise could be coming. 
and this again is much more than was previously estimated. A second paper, however, cautions that these catastrophic rises may not happen depending on the collapse of the ice cliffs in Antarctica. And now, of course, some people argue that the science isn't settled and they'll point to papers that contradict one another. The contradiction isn't in whether or not it's going to happen. It's how much climate change is going to affect us. And if even some of the dire predictions come through, they'd be catastrophic. Rupert Reed has written a piece entitled Climate Change and Deep Adaptation in the magazine Ecologist that calls for a massive overhaul of our existing leadership, society, and way of life. It is a prediction of what will happen if we don't accept that our future will not be a direct continuation of the industrial past, and that proposals as grand as the Green New Deal are needed today. I'll be covering the Green New Deal at some length in the next week or two, but just check this article out as a good starting point for that conversation. Similarly, Medium has posted an article discussing the crisis in Venezuela as a model for what may happen globally as fossil fuels become less readily available. It is not a comforting article and goes into some of the background specific to Venezuela, but also extrapolates to a more global context. Unfortunately, my news roundup is rather pessimistic, but we have to stay hopeful. The reason that the Institute exists is to give us something to do today with our own hands in our own lives to make our corner of the world a little better prepared for when the future comes at us. Our tagline is housing, clothing, and feeding ourselves in a post-fossil fuel world, and we mean it. The only way that these stories and others out there today can be combated is with positive, forward-thinking change. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more. Visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or follow the link in the podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Next week, we'll be at the Organic Agriculture Conference called Moses in La Crosse, presenting a poster on the research we did with potatoes in 2018. So come by and check us out there, as well as all the other great information that will be presented. I'll be summing up the workshops and other information I've gotten in a couple of blog posts, so stay tuned for that. The big news right now, though, is our 2019 Skillshare event has been announced and is open for registration. This annual spring event, well, we hope it'll be annual, brings together people to learn practical skills and hands-on classes focused on housing, clothing, and feeding ourselves in a world without fossil fuels. In addition to dozens of classes taking place over two days, we'll also have a social aspect, camping, meals from farm-to-table restaurant Wendigo, a documentary screening, and a folk music jam. This event will happen June 1st and 2nd, 2019 in Cooksville, Wisconsin. This will be the pilot year of what we hope will be an annual festival of classes related to sustainability, DIY, hands-on, and individual or community self-sufficiency. Our current list of classes includes scything, mass heater construction, beekeeping, spoon carving, permaculture, mushrooms, soap making, hoop house construction, dyeing fabric, spinning wool, saving your own seeds, invasive plant removal, wild food foraging, knife and tool sharpening, and more. The biggest complaint I got at the Wisconsin Garden Expo, there are too many classes happening and I want to take them all, which I think is a good complaint. We'll be interviewing some of the instructors on our upcoming podcasts. Check out lowtechinstitute.org and click on the sustainability Skillshare link on the homepage to learn more.
That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Agency Smile off the album Matthew by The Agrarians. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Tech Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly at scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks and take care. I edit for time, usually not for content, so unless you specifically ask me to say, hey, can you take that out? scandal is here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 1800s wood floors. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are jokes, but I'll spare you. Um... <laughs> okay, we're recording. Don't say anything funny. You were thinking of something funny? You didn't sorry. come up with it. <laughs> I trying to think of a really funny word. I couldn't. Embolism. Are you, have you ruled out shellac? No, we just we haven't talked about it much. Um, okay. I mean, shellac, I think, kind of has the worst of both worlds. <laughs> because Then let's talk about well, it. Well, because you... Ha- I mean, well, uh, it's kind of a hybrid between the two because it gives you more of a polyurethane-looking finish and repels water. However, it, like he said, um, because alcohol is what um, mm. dissolves the shellac... Um, I don't anticipate a lot of alcohol spills in the kids' room. <laughs> I don't know. Your office will be up there, too. Yeah, I don't anticipate a lot of alcohol <laughs> spills anywhere up there. Uh, so, you know, we wouldn't do it in the kitchen, for sure, or in the dining room, because uh, of our raucous parties. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, but, but what, I mean, so, but yeah. But it can be but, retouched. Well, but we're talking about alcohol like drinking alcohol that could affect it but there are that means there are other things that could be up there yeah for instance rubbing alcohol um that how often have you ever spilled out rubbing right 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 right. no but i'm saying that there's other things other than consumable alcohol that that could affect the shellac that that we're not thinking about yeah that's true nail polish remover yeah oh yeah that would that would remove the shellac yeah would that hurt the polyurethane i mean again not that that's something that's done all the time. But then, I mean, it's, there's also the plan to put a bathroom up there eventually. Right. And that's so that's something tiles. to factor in. Right, yeah. right. But that means that there's, well, I guess there won't be a shower in it. So it's not like there's going to be water being dragged but still, around. still, if we have but, somebody who's painting their nails and removing nail polish, then, yeah, there's there's potential. And again, it's not like there's yeah. going to be a ton of that. But there's other things that could impact the shellac. Right. That could be up there other than consumable alcohol. I do like that it's made out of resin and that it's food safe, according to the FDA. That's neat. I mm-hmm. like that. So I, I do, I like that because I do worry about putting things in our house, like uh, that have Prop 64 or Prop 65 warnings or other things, like putting toxic things into our house Yeah, is a worry to me. I agree. I think that's a valid concern. And I might just think about that every year when I'm retouching the the linseed oil floors. <laughs> this is non-toxic. I think, this is non-toxic. I think this is non-toxic. We, I think what we learned from this conversation is we need to look more into water-based polyurethane. Yeah. Because if that solves all 
all or the majority of our concerns with the oil-based polyurethane, then it sounds like that's probably doesn't solve the, the concern option. that I, I, I want to do linseed oil. <laughs> <laughs> How many projects have you gotten to do with linseed oil, though? You've gotten to do plenty of linseed oil projects. I know, but never a floor. I like how it looks. I like that it feels like satiny. It would be better for Casey when she gets old. She won't be slipping. You know how much she slips around on the hard wooden floors with the shiny surface? How she scrabbles and hates it? But there will be area rugs down. Which will do the same thing. Yeah, and then the edges will be linseed oil, so she also won't be slipping around on them. They're satin finish, not gloss. But then it's one more thing that you have to do every year. You have to give me time to find an expert who agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> you found it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> mm, should have screened him better and said, you'll agree with me and not my wife, right? <laughs> No, I mean, I, you know, the little swatch upstairs, we'll add it to the blog so people can see it if we okay. keep talking about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it does have a nice look, but it, but again, one of my concerns is I don't want to have to explain to people why something looks the way it does. I don't, you I know, don't think they, I, you know. By the time they get up there, they'll be so bowled over with all the weird stuff in our house. <laughs> They're not going to be like, this floor is weird. They're going to be like, oh, this That's, floor looks in, it looks unusual and nice. Right. Like, like I, I enjoy making all of these modifications, but I don't want our house to be outwardly weird unless we choose to show people <laughs> the outward weirdness. I'll say uniqueness. I'll change it to that. Okay. Um, but we can also tell... I mean, it's fun to... I like explaining that sort of thing. Like, this floor is made out of an eco-friendly product that can be made, you know, grown here and milled, and you can lick it, and it won't hurt you. <laughs> and <laughs> then ahead. are you going to lick the Go, floor? No, I'll invite them to lick our floor. <laughs> snowsberries taste like snowsberries. Um, so, well, so, but again, is this water-based polyurethane eco-friendly i mean we'll have to do some research water base sounds good yes <laughs> water I mean, is compared good to, compared to, compared the, to yeah, right, the, right 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 so that's what i'm saying alcohol. i think i yeah. think more research is needed on that because we didn't know that that existed right yeah all right we'll look into that okay and then we'll continue the conversation talking around continues. until we, you let me do the Lindsay <laughs> Is that how our discussions usually go? No. No, dear. Okay. What do you think, Casey? Casey loves linseed oil. What? She, like, licks It's things? oil. She loves any oil. Oh, she, she'll be licking the has floor. Has she licked linseed oil before when you're doing other I haven't seen her it? do it. Okay. She's not licking the chicken coop? No, I wouldn't want her to lick the boiled linseed oil because it has that salt and it. it might dry her out and... But it says it's non-toxic, so. We are not going to try that out. No. 